0: I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John 10, John chapter 10. Remind y'all of Ash Wednesday this week. Ash Wednesday is the first day of Lent. Lent's the six weeks leading up to Easter where we prepare our hearts um, for Easter Sunday. And historically, the church has observed Lent by fasting, fasting uh, Monday through Saturday. So not on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday. That equals out to 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. And again, the church historically has fasted as a way of identifying with Jesus' as 40 days in the wilderness when he fasted. Uh, when he fasted and again, at preparing our hearts for Easter. And we fasted as a church for the last five or six years. And we're going to do that again. And I would invite you to participate in that at whatever level. Uh, You feel led by the Lord. Uh, Fasting, if you're unfamiliar, it's voluntarily abstaining from food in several different ways. You can voluntarily abstain from uh, a type of food. So some people for Lent will give up coffee or they'll give up sweets. Uh, You can voluntarily abstain from a certain meal. You may say, I'm not going to eat breakfast on Mondays during Lent, something like that. If you've never fasted before, that to me is the, the easiest entry, is to fast a meal. Uh, maybe once a week to, 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 to not eat that meal. Or you may fast uh, a whole day or several days over the course of Lent. All of those are fine. One is not better than the other. Uh, just Again, just according to kind of how you're feeling led and how comfortable you are with fasting. Uh, I would encourage you, again, if you've never fasted, try. At least try uh, once over the course of Lent. And if you have fasted before, I would encourage you maybe to stretch just a little bit. Just a few kind of guidelines in terms of your thinking. Fasting is not dieting, you're not counting calories, you're not trying to get in your swimsuit before spring break, it's spiritual. That's what you're doing. It's, it's an expression of hunger for the Lord. It's an expression of dependence upon the Lord. Jesus says my food is to do the will of my Father. It can also be intercession. All of those types of things. It's a way of saying no. We, we live in a culture where we never, ever have to say no. And fasting is a way of saying no to your body, a way of saying no to your flesh. So it's all of those things, but it's not dieting. It doesn't do you any good to fast something that you don't like. So... I I fasted eggplant for 44 years. It's not going to be a big deal for me to do six more weeks. There's not a lot of spiritual value in that. So it's not how hard can I make it. But if to give up something that you don't is not necessarily a part of your regular rhythm anyway, you're probably just checking a box. And so I would encourage you to really think that through in terms of what you want to give up. And again, you're not trying to be a hero at all but uh, there is some level of sacrifice uh, involved. So I, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, while you're fasting, two things that you can be focused on in prayer. One, somebody who you love who needs Easter. Whatever that means for you, someone who doesn't know the Lord, maybe someone who's going through a very difficult time, but someone in your life whom you love who needs Easter. And I would say pray for them. Pray for them Sunday, or Monday through Saturday, those days where you're fasting when your stomach growls, when you're not eating breakfast, when you're not eating dessert, just remember them and ask the Lord to be working in their hearts, speaking to them, opening their eyes so they could see, recognize their need for a Savior, comforting them, whatever it is that they need. And when you think about our church, pray that over the course of Lent, we would see some breakthroughs in physical healing. We're going to have a healing service a uh, couple of weeks into April. We have a lot of people in our church who have chronic physical conditions, and we just we, we want to see those, uh, we want to see healing in their bodies, and so you can pray that during this time that God would move in a powerful way uh, in our body, in the bodies in our body, I guess is how you could say that. It's one of the benefits of Jesus's resurrection. He forgives us of our sins and He heals us of our diseases. So you can grab onto that, however you feel led, and uh, we'll see what the Lord does during the next six weeks. Okay, John 9. So last week, Jesus healed the eyes of a man who was born blind doesn't happen. I've never been able to see Jesus opens his eyes. And so this guy then is kicked out of the synagogue by the Pharisees because he's not willing to say Jesus is a sinner. In fact, he worships Jesus as the Messiah. And that miracle was a sign that was illustrating what it meant for Jesus to be the light of the world. That was one of the things Jesus said about himself. I'm the light of the world. And chapter 9 is an illustration of what that means, the spiritual illumination That Jesus brings. In chapter 9 closes, Jesus has this exchange with the Pharisees, and the last thing he says to them is, if you were blind physically, you'd be okay. That's not a sin. But the fact that you're claiming that you can spiritually see, you're still under guilt. Your guilt remains. The fact that you're so proud and so arrogant, you're so dug in in terms of how you're viewing me as a sinner, not as the Messiah, you're still under judgment from God, And chapter 10 picks up right on the heels of that. Jesus is still talking to that same group of Pharisees. And the, the man who has been healed, he may not be physically present, we don't know, but at least his healing is still in the background. That's still some of the context. So chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs them by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used his figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. So a little background. In the Old Testament... God's people, the Israelites, were called sheep oftentimes, and the leaders were called shepherds. So Jesus is using imagery that would be familiar with the Pharisees, and what he's trying to say to them, and they don't get it. We read that. They didn't understand. What he's trying to say is, y'all aren't legitimate leaders anymore. You're not legitimate leaders any longer. And Jesus will go on to say that he is the legitimate leader of the people, that they've abdicated that. They're no longer... um, God's chosen leaders for the people. In Matthew, he's much more direct. He calls them blind guides and blind shepherds. In John, he's a bit more subtle, but they still don't understand. I don't know tons about sheep and shepherds. I don't know if you do, but a little background. So this is a sheep fold or a sheep pen in um, the area where Jesus would have Been over in Israel. And you can see it's circular. Some of them were square. It's made of rocks. And there's one opening. That's not where it's fallen apart. That's actually the only way in. So sometimes they would grow vines on top of those rocks to make it more difficult for somebody to kind of jump the fence. But at night, so shepherds would spend a lot of their time out nomadic, roaming with their sheep from pasture to pasture. Then at night, several shepherds would take their flocks to one of these sheep pens. And they would put them in there at night, and then a watchman would sit right there in that opening. And if a shepherd wanted to get in and see his sheep, he'd go to the watchman, and the watchman would know him because he knows the shepherds, and he would let him in, and that guy could see his sheep. But anybody else couldn't get in unless they jumped the wall. Then They're an intruder. They're a thief or they're a robber. And then in the morning, the shepherds would all come back to get their sheep to take them back out to graze. And just like if, if you're a dog uh, owner and you take your dog to the dog park and there's lots of dogs around and you whistle or you call your dog's name, your dog comes to you and nobody else does sheep are the same way. They recognize the voice of their shepherds, and the shepherds either uh, would sing or would call their name and their sheeps would gather to them and they would all go their separate ways for the day. And Jesus is saying I, I, that he's the legitimate shepherd. He's the one who can come in and go out of that sheep pen, and they're the ones, the Pharisees, they're the ones jumping over the wall. They're not legitimate leaders anymore. And just like this man, this blind man who had just been healed, just like he recognized Jesus's voice and recognized Jesus as the Messiah, so the people of Israel will do the same. And so that's what Jesus is trying to say, and the Pharisees don't get it, and so now he goes on to talk about himself as a legitimate leader, and he uses two different metaphors. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. There's one. I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. There's the second picture. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. And does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man who runs away because he's a hired hand, the man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So two pictures I'm the gate and I'm the good shepherd. When we think gate, we think door. Gate's a person. Remember, there's only one opening in that sheepfold, and the watchman's who sits there. And Jesus says, That's me. I'm the one just like that guy on the left. I'm the one who sits in that opening, and I function as the gate. So when the sheep come in at night, I I take up my position there, and the sheep can't get out, and no thieves and no robbers can get in. Anyone who comes up to me when I'm sitting in that gate, I turn them away. The thief wants to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to eat the sheep, that's not me. In the morning, I open up as this gate. And the sheep go out and eat. And they don't just eat a little. They eat everything. They eat more than they need. I give life abundantly. That word abundantly is more than is necessary. That's what Jesus offers to these sheep. He's contrasting himself with, this, with these thieves and these robbers. who just want to take advantage of the sheep. Whereas he provides for them. And then he shifts metaphors and says, I'm the good shepherd. So if the gate protects the sheep at night when they're in this sheep pen, the shepherd protects the sheep during the day when they're out in the field. Shepherds lead from the front. They don't drive from the back. So a shepherd is going to encounter danger before the sheep will. And Jesus says, that's what I do. And he contrasts himself with, your Bible may say, the hireling or a hired man, just someone who's paid to take care of the sheep. When a wolf comes, the guy who's paid to care for the sheep decides, that I'm out. I'm not going to risk my life for these sheep that aren't even mine. And he runs away. But that's not the case for a good shepherd. A good shepherd, and Jesus is talking in generalities, a good shepherd will risk his life for the sheep, will risk physical harm for the sheep. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's the kind of shepherd that I am. I protect the sheep as this gate. I protect them at night and during the day as they're out. I, I protect them as well. And now he moves beyond what anyone would think a good shepherd would do. He presses beyond that to a different level of relationship altogether. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. We'll pause there. So shepherds may risk uh, for a sheep. They may risk injury. They may in some ways put their life on the line, but they're not going to die for a sheep. They don't do the flock any good if they're dead. And Jesus says, I actually do that. I I do die for my sheep. I lay down my life for them. Those of you who have animals and, and you love them and you, you know, they're, you name them and you talk to them and you care for them and they ride in the front seat of the car with you and you do all of those things, if I asked you and said, you love your dog or cat very much, do you love your dog or cat as much as you love your mom or your dad? Or as much as you love your son or your daughter? You better say no. That's the right answer to the question. As much as we love our pets, the relationship we have, family is different. And that's the image Jesus moves to. This isn't just, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He's saying the same relationship, depth of relationship and intimacy I have with the Father, I also want to have that same depth of intimacy and relationship with my followers, with, with my sheep, with those who are following after me. He's moved beyond what a good shepherd would do. This is unique and Unusual, this shepherd who says, I want to know my sheep. That word know in the New Testament doesn't mean know about cognitively. It's not intellectual knowledge, it's relational. It's a word that's used of the the way a husband and a wife know each other. And he's saying, That's the level of relationship I want to have with those who follow me, and I'm willing to die for them. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, so he's speaking to Jews, so he's referring to Gentiles. That's most of us are Gentiles. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. He's talking about bringing Jews and Gentiles together. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So this shepherd can die for his sheep, and he comes back to life. They don't understand. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said he's demon-possessed and raving mad while listening to him. But others said these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus has again brought divisions. You have to make a decision what you think about him. You can't ride the fence. He forces you to decide. And so that's what brings division to a group. It's not because Jesus of himself is necessarily forcing division. It's because by, who, by his nature, he does make people decide. And that brings division, that decision. Are you going to be for him or against him? And we see that playing out again. We talk a lot about the importance of developing deep personal roots in Jesus. And that's that last section that we read, laying down life, relationship like. Jesus has with the Father. We're not going to talk about that today, not because it's not incredibly important. It is. It's, it's fundamental. But we talk about it often. And so I, what I want to focus on this morning is the idea of Jesus as a protector. That's not something that we do talk about very often. The, the imagery of gate and shepherd, to me, those are protecting pictures. The gate protects these sheep at night, keeps them in and keeps thieves and robbers out. And during the day, the shepherd protects by being in front. He confronts the wolf or whatever the dangers are that the sheep would face before the sheep get that far. What does it mean for Jesus to be our protector? Sometimes we hear that word protector, we immediately think physical. And there is some truth to that. And I don't want to diminish that. God does protect us. Jesus does protect us physically but he protects us spiritually in a much different way. He protects us spiritually completely. He protects us spiritually fully, physically that you don't see that. You're going to get sick. You're going to get hurt. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. Spiritually, very different. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples on the first short-term mission trip, and he says this to them, I send you out like sheep among wolves. There's some of our same imagery. And this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged, beaten with sticks. Some of you are going to, brothers are going to betray brother to death, and children are going to betray their parents to death. And then he says, I don't want you to worry about anyone that can destroy your body. Those are the only people we worry about. We worry about people and circumstances that hurt us physically. And Jesus says, you don't worry about that. The one you need to worry about is the one who can kill your body and destroy your soul. It's a different type of protection. Ten of the people who he's talking to will be killed because of their relationship with him. They'll be martyred for their faith. Judas kills himself, and John winds up in exile on an island. The other ten, all of them die because of their relationship with Jesus. But Jesus can say in in John... The ones that you've given me, I've never lost one of them. Nobody can snatch anyone that you've given me from my hand. Paul can say in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. There's a spiritual protection that is complete and that's final and that's full. It's what secures our place forever with the Father. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his followers, his last prayer that is recorded. And he he prays this, God, protect them. From the evil one. I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I pray that you would protect them from the evil one. God does protect us physically, but that's secondary. What's primary is his spiritual protection. He protects our hearts. Uh, once we're his, we're his. Part of what it means to be omnipotent, there's nobody stronger than Jesus. And so once he's got you in his grip, nobody can snatch you from his hand. You're safe spiritually, until you get to heaven. So what does it mean for us to say Jesus is the gate and Jesus is the shepherd, thinking spiritually, not physically? When I think of this idea of Jesus as the gate, I picture my heart. The heart is its the center of our personality, where mind, will, and emotions are all centered. So don't just think about how you feel. Biblically, your heart's where you, it's where you feel, and it's where you think, and it's where you choose. All of that is done from your heart, the center of who you are. And I think of Jesus as the gateway or the doorway into my heart. And he only lets things in that are good, that are beneficial to me. You see that verse up there, that famous verse from Philippians, and it talks about the kinds of things that Jesus lets in, things that are pure and noble and admirable and praiseworthy, lovely. Those are the things that Jesus lets in. But I also think about how often in my own life I throw a rope over the wall. Jesus only lets good things in, but I throw a rope over the wall of my heart and I let in all kinds of other stuff that doesn't fit that picture from Philippians 4.8. He doesn't let those things in, but I certainly make a way for those things to come into my life. And I wonder if you do the same. He's the gate He's the door. He wants to protect us from things that are wicked and things that are evil and things that are unrighteous and things that are ultimately the enemy will use to wreak havoc in our hearts. Remember, the enemy, all he wants to do is eat you, steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. And for some reason, we choose to give him, if I can change the picture, we give him bullets to shoot at us all the time. I wonder this question. I was, do you ever think about what you think about? And how about this? Do you ever ask Jesus what he thinks about what you think about? Have you ever asked him, what do you think about what I think about? If Paul says, dwell on these things, things that look like this, how much of my time do I spend dwelling on other things? How much fodder do I give the enemy? that then causes me to dwell on things that are not pure and not noble and not good and not admirable? How, how much fodder do I give the enemy? Because I throw a rope over the wall of my heart by what I watch or what I listen to or the thing, places that I choose to go. Super easy to fall into legalism when you start talking like this, and the church has done that in the past. Some movies are bad, so we don't watch any movies, and some music is bad, so we don't listen to any music. It's not helpful. It makes you hypocritical. It makes you self-righteous. It turns you into a Pharisee. Not helpful. There are some things that we would say objectively nobody should ingest. There's no, no nothing is good is going to come out of it. pornography. Nothing good comes out of that for anybody. There's no circumstances in which that's okay for anybody. It doesn't fit that criteria in anybody's life ever. But there's this whole world of things that maybe seem a bit more gray, where we need a gate. You maybe can think of it like an allergy. I'm allergic to shellfish. I can't eat shrimp, or I can't breathe. That's, that's what happens. So there's an immediate incentive for me to stop eating shellfish if I accidentally take a bite. Spiritually, sometimes we don't have that immediate reaction, and so we continue to engage in things that aren't helpful. But do you even know what you're spiritually allergic to? And I may not be allergic to that thing spiritually. When we first got married, we were newlyweds, and I remember waking up a several, a I kind of this string of nightmares. I had nightmares for several weeks, maybe months in a row when my wife said, and they were violent, these violent dreams. And she said, of course you're having violent dreams. Look at what you watch on TV before we go to bed. Body counts are like dozens of people are dying. Why would you not think that you would have those dreams? It's not spiritual, that's just, it's, I threw a rope over the wall, and that was the stuff that was coming in, and so those were, the thing, those were the thoughts I was dwelling on. Do you think about what you think about? Do you ask Jesus what he thinks about what you think about? One for me that's just, it's irritating to me, MMA. So ESPN has picked up the UFC, which is the big MMA circuit, so it's right there every time I look up their website, it's something that's becoming popular. And I'm thinking, how are we okay with that? Like, how does that fit any of the criteria up there in Philippians 4? To see two people who created in the image of God get into an octagon, and their sole purpose is to beat the fool out of one another. And we think, yeah, God's thrilled. He made, that's what he made them for. Do you ask God, what do you think about what I think about? That's easy for me to pick on because I don't like it. That's why I said legalism. That's the ditch that we fall into. But do you think about what you think about? And do you ask Jesus what he thinks about what you think about? And have you ever asked him, have I thrown a rope over the wall of my heart? And am I letting things get in? I'm just giving the enemy ammunition. I'm creating this field that he can kind of wreak havoc in my mind and my heart. He can cause all kinds of things to grow because of what I'm ingesting ask him those questions. Many of us don't want to ask him because we're afraid what he's going to say is you can only read the Bible and you can only watch G-rated movies from the 1960s. And we're going to, we don't want to do that. We don't trust him. It's fundamentally where we get. We forget. He says, I want to, I've come that you would have life and have it abundantly more than is necessary. And we miss that. We miss that what his, his, his desires for us are more than we can ask or imagine. And so we don't ask him what he thinks about what we think about, because honestly, we don't want to know, because we think he's going to say no to everything we enjoy. Fundamentally, we don't trust him. Remember, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for you. His desire for you in terms of relationship, it's as intimate as the one he has with his father. He's the gate. To your heart. He's also the good shepherd who leads you out through your day. Interesting thing in the Lord's Prayer, I've never really understood. It was difficult for me praying, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. I always thought, why am I asking God not to lead me into temptation? Like, why would he do that? Why would I have to ask him not to do that? But what if lead me not into temptation is more saying, God, you know where the temptations are. You made me. You know the areas where I'm weak. You also can see the way my day and my week and my month lay out. And so I'm asking you, don't lead me into the places where I'm going to be tempted. Because I know I'm going to to fail. Some because I'm weak and some because, honestly, I like to do those things. That's why they're temptations for me. I've never been tempted to eat eggplant. I'm tempted because it's something I actually enjoy. But God knows where the mines are in the minefield, or he knows where the traps are that the enemy's laid, and he knows the ones I'm most vulnerable to. So when I pray, lead me not into temptation, what I'm saying is I want to stick close to you, and you don't get anywhere near those things. I don't trust me. When you think about your day, do you think about that? Do you pray that prayer before you begin your day? God, lead me not into temptation. Because if you don't, if I'm confronted with temptation at some point, I'm going to sin, both because I'm weak and because, honestly, there's sins that I enjoy committing. So I need you to be my good shepherd. Go in front of me and help me to stick close to you. You say, I would know your voice. Do you silence the voice of your own conscience? When you have that little voice, that little check in your heart, that little feeling of uneasiness, do you say that very well may be the Holy Spirit? Or do you say... Do you, do you minimize? Do you say, ah, that's nothing. I'm going to ignore that. That's silly. This isn't a big deal. If you recognize his voice, are you willing to heed his voice? I talk to people sometimes, and their lives are a wreck, and they say things like, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I got here. I just woke up. And they didn't just wake up, but that's what it feels like. I just woke up. I'm in the bar every night. I'm in this relationship with this person who's not my spouse. I'm addicted to this behavior or substance. I don't even know how I got here. We create these ruts with our behavior. And those ruts are really easy. It's like a groove. It's really easy to stay in them. That's why it's called a rut. We're not staying close to the good shepherd at that point who can lead us through those minefields. I wonder for you, as you think about your day and your week and your month, are there ruts where you know you're going to wind up in temptation? Maybe you resist, maybe you don't, but that's where you're inevitably going to wind up. There's a, there's a relationship, and you know where it's going to go because it's where it always goes. There's a circumstance, and you know where it's going to go because it's where it always goes. There conditions maybe for you when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're lonely. You know where, you, you know where you're going to end up because of where you always end up. Are you willing to put that before the good shepherd and say, I need a new path. I'm not doing a good job in navigating this minefield on my own. I'm stepping on the same ones over and over again. I'm falling into the same traps repeatedly. I need you to lead me not into temptation because my track record's not so good apart from you. You have a good shepherd who desires to lead you through. Psalm 23, he wants to lead you to green pastures. He wants to lead you to quiet waters. He wants to lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And you know his voice. Will you stick close to him? You have a gate on your heart. Only allows in. The only stuff he lets in is stuff that's going to be beneficial to you. Don't throw a rope over the side of the wall. Let's take a few minutes and pray. Super easy when we talk about things like this. Two ditches. One is legalism. Create these rules. Rules actually are, they're, it's not good. Rules wind up replacing relationships. It's not helpful. It's easier to say, I'm never going to go to the movies again. It's more difficult to submit to the Lord on a regular basis and say, is this okay? Is this not okay? But ultimately, that's what he wants. He laid down his life for you while you and me were still enemies of his. And he says, the relationship that I have with my father, that's what I'm looking for with those who follow me. So that's one ditch, the ditch of legalism. Don't fall into that. The other, and you may be doing this in your mind already, you're rationalizing and justifying your behavior. You're already thinking of what you're going to say to me or why you do what you do. You don't need to justify anything to me. But if that's the mode that you're in, then you're not submitting to the Lord. You're resisting Him. And so I want to encourage you just for these few moments to recognize Remember that last section. The one who laid down his life for you. You can trust him. His desire is to lead you into an abundant life. More than is necessary. He's not just surviving, not just scraping by. So would you ask him these two questions? One. Jesus, what do you think about what I think about? Some things that you can play of off of that. Jesus, is there anything that I'm thinking about that I'm spiritually allergic to? Anything that's not beneficial? He may bring something to your mind. You may be surprised. There may be nothing. If there is something, I'd encourage you just to confess that back to him. Maybe something like this. Jesus, I recognize that you're the gate of my heart. That your desire is to protect me from thieves and robbers. From all of the ways the enemy would seek to try to steal and kill and destroy my heart and my soul. So if I'm giving him access in any way, I want to first pray that you would forgive me and two, pray that you would cut off that access point. I don't want to watch that, say that, listen to that, read that, do that, anything. I don't want to give him any more bullets than he already has. Would you help me? Second topic, second big question. Jesus, my following you through the minefield? Or are there, do I have these ruts that are leading me almost inevitably to sin? See if you bring something to your mind. Again, you may be surprised. something comes to your mind just again confess that God I confess that that's not a helpful thought pattern that's not a helpful circumstance that's not a helpful way of relating to somebody whatever that is I confess that to you as sin and pray that you would forgive me and I pray as my good shepherd that you would lead me through on a different path that you would give me grace to follow close to you I recognize that I hear your voice and I want to respond to you I don't want to look around and see what other people are doing. I want to keep my ears tuned to you. Would you make me sensitive to the voice of your spirit in my life? Would you forgive me for the times that I suppress his voice? I want to trust that the places that you want to lead me are the best places for me. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. Maybe you came with a need. Love to pray with you about that. Two things in particular. One, if you have nightmares, we want to pray for you. Doesn't mean you're watching the wrong thing on TV. But it could just mean that the enemy is kind of taking advantage of the fact that you're asleep. And so mentally you're not engaged. And we want to pray for you. You may have children who have nightmares. And if you want to get them, if it's appropriate, and bring them back, we'll pray for them also. Second thing, maybe a little bit harder to admit, but if there are patterns in your life, these ruts that are leading you kind of almost inevitably towards sin, we want to pray for grace, for God to break those patterns in your life and to chart a new course for you. So you guys can stand. Ministry teams, you guys come forward if you would. Y'all you respond as you feel led, but we'll dismiss us in a minute or two.